Hey there, and welcome to the Sermon Podcast for Timberlake Church in Lynchburg, Virginia. Our mission is to reach, feed, and release people to be the hands and feet of Jesus. You can learn more at our website, TimberlakeUMC.org. We hope you enjoy today's message. Welcome to the last Sunday in our series. It's called Life in the Wilderness, and this is the message portion of the service, friends, when we read the scriptures and interpret them to one another and listen for what the Holy Spirit of God is saying to us, the people of God, to the church. We've been preaching through the book of Exodus and examining the similarities between God's people Israel in the wilderness outside of Egypt and the church, God's people, the church, in the wilderness that is the year 2020. Now, the book of Exodus is mainly about two things. Remember, rescue and relationship. Rescue and relationship. After God rescued the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt, God moved to form a covenant relationship with them. Now, last week we talked about one important sign of the covenant, that is the Ten Commandments. So God gave Israel the Ten Commandments. Uh, But also God gave many chapters of related laws that would help form them into a community. Uh, God gave laws about personal injury, uh, about property, about Sabbath keeping. Uh, And then beginning in chapter 25 and going all the way to chapter 31, we get instructions for worship. Seven chapters of instructions for worship. And God gives commands about all kinds of things related to worship. How to make the offering, uh, how to build the Ark of the Covenant, which is that, that box covered in gold that holds the Ten Commandments how to construct the tabernacle. There's instructions for the mercy seat, uh, for the bread of the presence, for the lampstand, the sanctuary, the curtain, the altar, and the priests, how to ordain the priests, what the priests are supposed to wear. Uh, There's even instructions for the oil, for the lamp. It's supposed to be pure olive oil. It's supposed to be burned every evening. And as you read through these seven chapters, it could be easy to get caught up in the details. So I want you to remember the point, okay? What's the point of seven chapters of instructions on worship. Well, it's two things. First, worship begins with the offering. Worship begins with offering. For ancient Israel, for the people of God, the most fundamental element of worship is offering. And it starts there in chapter 25, verse 1, very detailed instruction on how the offering is supposed to go. The Lord said to Moses, tell the Israelites to make for me an offering. You shall receive from them gold, silver, and bronze, blue, purple, and crimson yarns and fine linen, goat's hair, tanned ram's skins, fine leather, acacia wood, oil for the lamps, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, and the list goes on and on. For God and for Israel, worship begins with an offering. As we think about our own practice of worship, it's good to remember the importance of offering our financial gifts, uh, but also offering our hearts, right, and our minds. Uh, The essence of worship is offering ourselves to God, not just the money, right, but offering our whole lives, offering ourselves to God. Now, the second point of seven chapters of instructions for worship is this, God really cares about worship. God really, really cares about our worship. God cares deeply about it, about how we do it, about who shows up, about the attitude with which we approach God's throne. 
Worship really matters to God. And if it matters that much to God, guess what? It should matter that much to us. Remember back to the burning bush. God came to Moses and said, look, you're going to go confront the Pharaoh. And Moses protested a little, right? He said, I I don't know if I can do that. Well, give me a sign, Lord. Give me some reassurance. And look at verse 11 from chapter 3. Moses said, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you. And this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Worship is a sign of freedom. Worship is a sign of freedom. How's that? Well, slaves can't worship as they choose, can they? No. Slaves are commanded to worship their their masters, to worship the Pharaoh, to worship the king. Only free people can worship the one true God. Now, one of the things that you and I celebrate about America is freedom of religion. Every person who lives in the United States is free to worship as they feel led to do so. But, but the downside of that, there's a downside, right? The downside is sometimes we take this freedom for granted because it doesn't feel to us like there's very much at stake. But when you read what Exodus says about worship, you realize everything is at stake. Worship is a sign of our freedom. Worship is at the center of our relationship with God. Now think about that with me in light of uh, some of our current attitudes about worship. And let's be honest with ourselves and with God for just a moment. We can be apathetic at times, can't we? Uh, We can be somewhat nonchalant about worship and we think, eh, whatever, you know, I can take it or leave it. And maybe we worship one Sunday and then maybe we skip it the next or maybe we skip it several Sundays in a row, depending on if we feel like it or not. And even when we do show up, we are tempted to be more concerned with our own entertainment than we are with what God wants from us. And so I hear church people saying things like, you know, this music just really isn't my style, or I'm not sure if I even liked the sermon today. I I don't know if I got anything out of the service today. Friends, there are many acceptable styles for worship. It can be casual or formal. It can be modern or traditional. Uh, But if you are a follower of Jesus, you cannot just take it or leave it. Worship is essential. Worship is essential, and it doesn't really matter what I want or what you want. It really only matters what God wants. So lesson number one from the last part of Exodus in these last chapters that we're covering today. Lesson number one is God really cares about our worship. Lesson number two. God is leading his people to the promised land. So we pick up the story in chapter 33. Remember, uh, we started back in chapter 25, and we talked about the importance of worship. And for seven chapters, the, the details go on and on. And now here we are in chapter 33, starting with verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, Go, leave this place, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, and go to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, 
go up to a land flowing with milk and honey. So God commands Moses and the Israelites to leave Mount Sinai and to head for the land of Canaan, which was promised to their ancestors. Now, considering Israel's disobedience and their idolatry, this is no small thing. It means God is forgiving them. It means God still wants a relationship with them. It means God is making a future for them in spite of their failure. And this is why we call it the promised land, right? Because it's the land that was promised to their ancestors. This was part of God's covenant with Abraham and Sarah to make of them a great nation. And what do you need to make a great nation? Well, you need two things at least. You need people and you need land. You need people and land. Now, some of us grew up in Sunday school and we learned a song that goes, Father Abraham had many sons and many sons had Father Abraham. Sing along. I'm one of them and so are you. So let's all praise the Lord. And then for some reason you start moving your right arm and then your left arm. I don't understand that part of the song, but (laughs) this is a song about covenant, right? This is a song that, that reflects the first promise of God to Abraham, which is descendants, people. Uh, God said to Abraham and Sarah, I'll make of you a great nation. You will have many, many descendants, as, as many as there are stars in heaven. So that's the first promise. The second part of the promise is land. God promises them a place to live. A, in other words, a home. I will give you a home. Remember where uh, Moses' people have been living for a long, long time. In Egypt, in a place that is not their home. In, in, a, in a place of slavery and of oppression. Think for a minute about the importance of having a home. Okay, and if, if that does not immediately resonate with you, uh, ask someone who has lived without a home. Ask someone who has been away from home for a long time. Okay, home is a welcome gift. The promised land is a welcome gift for people who have been without a home. And the way that they will know that it is the promised land is that it will be flowing with milk and honey. Now, what does that mean? Flowing with milk and honey. Okay, so this is metaphorical. Now, it's literal also. There'll be milk there and honey, but it's also metaphorical. It points to the fertility of the land. Any farmer, any gardener can tell you that the land makes all the difference. Land with rich soil, with abundant sunshine, with soft rain, produces abundance, an abundance of crop, an abundance of livestock, and of good things. So the milk and honey is there as a sign of fertility of the land. The Bible also says that the milk and honey is flowing. Now, flowing means there's energy, right? There's power. It means there's a source from which these blessings are coming, and it does not run out. It goes on and on. It flows. What does milk stand for? Well, milk is the baby's first nutrition from its mother, right? And so like a mother, God feeds God's children with good things. And what does the honey stand for? Honey is sweet, isn't it? Honey reminds us of the sweetness of God's love and of God's saving power for God's people. And so just as milk and honey are are metaphorical in that way, the promised land is also, it's more than just a, a geographical location in the ancient Near East. The promised land is also a reminder of heaven, of that eternal home that is promised by God to his people. 
And just like Canaan, in heaven there will be a feast of milk and honey that never runs out, provided by our loving God and full of freedom and peace found only in God's eternal home. The way the Israelites longed for and looked forward to the promised land is the same way that we long for and look forward to heaven. So lesson number two from this part of Exodus is God is leading his people to the promised land. Which brings us to lesson number three. Lesson number three is this. God is on the move. God is on the move. So we come to the end of the story of Exodus, and here are the last three verses from the whole book. This is in chapter 40, verses 36 and 37 and 38. It says this. Whenever the cloud was taken up from the tabernacle, the Israelites would set out on each stage of their journey. But if the cloud was not taken up, they did not set out until the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and the fire was in the cloud by night, before the eyes of all the house of Israel at each stage of their journey. Okay, let's talk about the tabernacle. The tabernacle. What was that? The tabernacle was simply a tent. Now, it was a very elaborate tent with a lot of particulars. Remember all the particulars about worship. There's a lot of details about the tabernacle in the book of Exodus. But at its most basic level, it is a tent. And the tent is a place where God would dwell and where the Israelites could meet with God for worship, to, to make their offerings. The tabernacle was a tent, and uh, it is a dwelling place for God and the location of their relationship with God through worship. Now, why a tent? Why a tent? Well, remember where they are. They're in the desert, right? They're still far from home. They're moving from place to place. And, of course, the essence of a tent is that it's what? Mobile. The essence of a tent is that it's mobile. When you go camping, you can set up your tent for one night or for one week or whatever you want. And then when you're finished, you pack it up and you move on. Okay, so the fact that the Lord is dwelling in a tent means that God is on the move. And the fact that Israel worships in a tent means that they are a people on the move. Friends, get this. God is not limited to a building. God is not limited to a building, and neither are God's people limited to a building. Now, I cannot think of a better message for God's people at a time when we have been scattered away from the building, into our homes, into the community, sent out, and yet we are still called to be the church, aren't we? Whether we have the building or not, we are the church. It's interesting, when you look at the history of Christianity, uh, People have continually, the people of God have, have continually tried to capture God inside of buildings, right? All the while, God is breaking out of buildings and moving out into the world. And so Christian people of every century have said to themselves, you know, if we, if we could just build a big enough cathedral, you know, if, if we could just construct the right kind of church building, you know, if we could just make a nice sanctuary, then we could meet God there. And God says, don't you see, I, I'm moving out into the world. God says, yes, come and gather. But then we go. We go outside the walls into the world. It's ironic, perhaps, that in the places and times in the history of the church, when the movement 
of God's people grew the fastest and made the most impact. Those were the places and times when the church did not even have a building. Right? We think of our building as essential, and it is an incredible blessing. I'm not sure what we would do without it. We'd have to rethink a lot of things, wouldn't we? But keep in mind that in the times and places when the church had no building, those were the times and places when the church has seen tremendous fruit by the power of the Holy Spirit. So think about the first century church where they did not uh, meet in any buildings. Now, they met in homes, but they didn't have one central location in the community. It was illegal to be a follower of Jesus. Think about in China right now in our lifetime where it is, uh, there is oppression against people of faith and where the underground church meets without church buildings and yet the church is growing like crazy. It's growing like crazy right now in China. It grew like crazy in the first century as the followers of Jesus were spreading the gospel out into the world. So, we're eager to get back on campus uh, to see our friends and to gather for life groups and to gather for worship. I am too. But remember, friends, when we gather, the purpose is not to stay there forever. It is to be refueled and refreshed as we go back out into the world. We have a lot to learn from the people of the Exodus. We have a lot to learn from the God of the Exodus. Remember, Exodus means exit. You knew that, right? Exodus means exit. It means going out. It means leaving one place and going on to the next. God is on the move, and God's people are on the move. Now, God's people may not always understand exactly what's happening, right? Uh, we may not always understand why it's happening or where we are going next, but there are two things that we can know for sure. One is we're not going back. We're not going back. When the Israelites complained about being tired and hungry, they demanded to Moses, take us back to Egypt. And I, it seems to me there's, there's part of each of us that wants to go back. We want to go back to Egypt, right? We want to go back to the good old days. And they may not have been perfect, but at least it was predictable. But friends, going back is not an option for God's people. God is not going backwards. God is going forwards. God has rescued us from the old life, from our old sin, and called us and leading us to go forward. So we're not going back. Second, we're not going alone. We're not going alone. The cloud of God's presence moved ahead of and with the Israelites. And God is with us in the person and the ministry of Jesus Christ. The Spirit is moving in the church right now. The Spirit of God is moving in your heart and in my heart. God is with us. I'm going to leave you with two last things today, friends. I wonder if you know that before there was such a thing as a group of people called Christians, the followers of Jesus in the early church were known as people of the way. People of the way. In other words, they were people on a journey. They were people going somewhere, growing in their faith, following Jesus and the gospel of Christ out into the world. They were a people on the move, on their way to the promised land, centered in the worship that they shared, the worship of the living God. And so I'm so proud to be one of the pastors at a church 
where we are serious about being released out into the world in the name of Jesus. When I first came to Timberlake four years ago this summer, one of the mental images that God gave me for who we are, God showed me and said that we are like horses at the starting gate. And I don't know if you've ever uh, thought of yourself that way, but this is certainly meant as a compliment. We're like horses at the starting gate. And you know, have you ever seen a horse race? The horses are so excited to run, they can hardly stand it. And all they need is someone to open the gate. And so that's what God is doing for us, friends. God is opening the gate by the power of the Spirit and saying, run, go, you can do it. Go out into the world in the name of Jesus to reach, feed, and release people. Friends, may God release all of us for the ministry of Christ this day and forever. Amen.